Good morning. How is everyone doing? If you could take out your Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter 20 and also get out your uh, outline, your message outline. I, I just read a story of a family that was on vacation at the Grand Canyon and they were taking pictures on the northern rim of the Grand Canyon. And one of the sons, a 13-year-old boy, was by the ledge and he moved out of the way of other people taking a picture. And how he moved out of the way is he was standing there by the ledge and people came in to take a picture of the background and he just bent down and grabbed hold of the rock and just leaned back. Well, he lost his grip and he fell back off the cliff. He fell 100 feet down off the cliff. He did not die, uh, but it took two hours for them to rescue him and he was severely hurt. He broke nine vertebrae, ruptured his spleen, had a collapsed lung, a concussion, a broken hand, and a dislocated finger. Uh, whoever thought you could get hurt by just taking a picture, right? But that's what happened to him. Yeah, but there were signs there that said, danger, don't get too close to the ledge. And stand back from the ledge, don't go beyond this. I remember right there where there were signs that says, no selfie sticks allowed beyond this point. Because it's dangerous, right, to get close to the ledge. And those signs were not meant to curb our joy to, or to restrict our freedom. Those signs were given to us to extend lives, right? To extend our lives. And that's the same way with the Ten Commandments are for. God was speaking to the children of Israel. They were at the bottom of the mountain. And God was coming down in the cloud to speak to them. And Moses was the mediator going back and forth. And God said, in the third day, I'm going to come down and speak to you. And in the third day, God comes down to speak to the people. And the Bible says that there was uh, thunder and lightning over and over. There was trumpet blasts that got louder and louder. And the whole mountain began to shake on Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb, or Mount, Yah Mount Yahweh. And they were doing this. And God said to the people, don't come any closer. Don't touch the mountain, because if you touch the mountain, you are surely going to die. And the picture is, his holiness was unapproachable. We just got through singing about his holiness. That God's holiness was unapproachable. And that's the picture at Mount Sinai. That's the picture at Mount Horeb. God's holiness is unapproachable. Stand back. Don't come close. To contrast that to the new covenant, the new covenant through Jesus, God is saying, come close. Come close to me through Jesus. That's the difference. The old Stand back. Don't come close. God is too holy, too just. Stand back from the mountain. Now God says, come close to me through Jesus Christ. So, so those people on that day, they understood about they had a big God. The whole mountain was shaking. And they understood that they had to stand in awe, in awe of that God. Amen? And so when, and then God spoke, and this is, a, this is how I want you to live. And he says in Exodus chapter 20, verse 2, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. There's relationship here, and I am your God, and you are my people, is what he's saying. And I, this is how I want you to live. And here's some commandments, and these are responsibilities, responsibility for you, because you are my representatives here on this earth. We were made in his image, and that means we're his representatives. And so it begins with relationship, it goes to responsibility, and then it goes to representation, is what he gave them. And then he gives them the first commandment. This is how I want you to live. And we looked at that last week. You shall have no other gods before me because God is a jealous God, and he doesn't want to share his glory with anyone else. Isaiah chapter 48, verse 11 says that. The first command, you shall have no other gods before me. The second command that God gave us, you shall not make for yourself an idol. Whether it's representing a false god, or whether that image or idol is representing the one true God, don't do it. No images. No images is what God said. Don't do it. And there are reasons for that. There are several reasons. Whatever we choose, it's, it limits God. It's limiting to God when we choose an object because we have a limitless God who can't be contained in an object that we place upon our mantle at home. 
It can't be contained in an object that we have in our garage, right? So it's limiting. It also confuses, obscures who God is. In other words, it usually grabs the attribute of that image that we have. It emphasizes that one attribute of God with the exclusion of all the others. So it confuses who God is. It's also controlling. It's controlling because if God can be contained in an object, then we can contain that object, right? We have control over that object. There was a man that went to a, an auction, and he bought this little statue of Jesus that he really liked. And he, and he came home, and he, he had an office the side of his home, and he decided to put it uh, on his desk in his office. Well, his wife came home, and she saw the statue, and she liked it very much. So she took it and put it in the family room at the end table. The man came in with his four-year-old daughter, and he said, that's not where that goes. I want that in my office. And he took it back in his office, put it on his desk. And his daughter said to him, says, Daddy, where are you going to take God now? See, it's controllable when we have idols. And idols are everywhere. If you have your outline, truth about idols, number one, idols will never satisfy. They will never, ever satisfy. Why? I'm going to give you two reasons, but let's listen to the, let's, let's uh, read the verse, verses before this. Exodus chapter 20, verse 4 through 6. Verse 4 is our memory verse, where he said, You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above, on the earth beneath, or in the waters below. Our memory verse. Then verse 5 and 6. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Idols can never, ever satisfy. Why? Because idols just take. Idols can never give. They never give. They just take, take, take. They're lifeless. They offer nothing to us, the Bible says, and they will just never, ever satisfy. He, he says here, he says, whatever we make with our own hands, whether it's two-dimensional or three-dimensional, where that's something uh, uh, heaven above, with something on here, here on earth, where it's something below the waters, below the earth, he covers all the spaces. He says, it doesn't matter where you take it, it cannot be God, because it cannot give life. Those idols can never give life, is what he's saying. And some have interpreted this to say, this passage, Therefore, anything we make with our hands, a painting or a sculpture, it's a violation of this second command. And some will take it that if you take a picture, that's creating an image, so it's a violation of this second command. And so does that mean all artwork, all paintings, all sculpture are a violation of this second command? Is that what it means? Now, I don't think it means that at all. I don't think that's what he's talking about. And you say, how do you know that? Well, in this church, what, what we do, we build everything on the Bible. Uh, we go to the Word of God. So it's just not my opinion I'm going to give you here today. This is what we do. We go to the Word of God to find out the answer to this. So if you looked at the book of Exodus, in Exodus, you're going to find a tabernacle there. You're going to find a tent there. And when you're traveling through the desert, you're going to be worshiping at that tent. But when you make the curtains for that tent, for that tabernacle, it, you're embroidered on those curtains that God told them to do was cherubim or golden chairs. God says, I want you to put them on there. They're works of art, right? But God said to do it. Put them on those, on that tent. Put them there, those works of art. But even a better example for us to look at would be the ark, the ark of the covenant. It was a box that was carried, and it led the children of Israel as they were wandering in the desert, carried by a group of priests, but they had to carry it a certain way. And it's interesting because the ark itself illustrates both the first and second commandment. They were to worship the one true God, command number one, and they were to worship him the right way, command number two. So this golden box contained two tablets. Want to guess what was on the tablets? What was on the tablets? 
the Ten Commandments, right? The Ten Commandments, the box contained other things, but this, this was supposed to represent the presence of God. But this wasn't the presence of God because God cannot be contained in a box, right? It just represented the presence of God. In fact, the Bible says God cannot fit into the heavens, and Solomon prayed that in the dedication of the temple. God cannot fit in the heavens. God is too big. The universe cannot contain God. So on top of this box, this, this Ark of the Covenant, it, you have this cover that's called the mercy seat, right? And on each side of the mercy seat, you have uh, two angels, a cherub or an angel, works of art. And if those works of art were condemned, then they were being condemned by the very Ten Commandments that are inside of that box under the cover of the mercy seat, right? So that's not what God was talking about, the works of art and those things that we make with our hands are against this second commandment. So what does he mean? The key to understanding this, he tells us, is verse 5. Verse 5 is the key to understand. What does he mean? You shall not bow down to them or worship them. That's what he was talking about. Idols take. They don't give. They never can give anything to you. They take over time, take our time and our talents. And God has given people the ability to create things, to, to paint, to write, to, to design, to sculpt. He's given the ability. He gives those gifts to the just and the unjust as well. And as they use those gifts, if they use them for idolatry, he says it robs us of our talent and it robs us of our time. And then it goes to our second point, it robs God of his glory. And that's the second truth about idols. Idols steal from God's glory. They always do. Steal from his glory. They rob from his glory. Augustine once wrote, idolatry is worshiping what should be used and using what should be worshiped. You remember the story in the children of Israel wandering in the desert, Numbers uh, chapter 21, and because of their sinfulness, because of their idolatry against God, and God allowed these serpents to go through the camp and they began to bite the people. And many of the people who were bitten died. And God was trying to get their attention. God was trying to bring them to repentance. And finally, Moses and others were calling out to God for help and for help. For help and for help. Help us, God. And so God said this, I want you to make a serpent, and I want you to put it on a staff, and I want you to raise it up and tell the people to look and live. To look at the serpent and believe. And he says, you will be healed from your snake bite, from your serpent bite, okay? Centuries later, Jesus in John chapter 3, he used that where he said to the people in this, John chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. So let me ask you, did the snake or serpent give life? No, God gave life. Did the snake or serpent give healing? No, God gave healing. And Jesus provided that as, as he's lifted up on the cross, right? Jesus provided that. But another event happened between these two events. 700 years later, after this snake in the desert, uh, the children of Israel, they took that snake on that staff, and they kept it, and they used it as an idol. And Hezekiah, who was a godly king of Israel, took that, that idol, and he broke it into pieces. And he said, you can't have idols. You can't have idols, right? Get rid of all the idols. And God knows, and he knew then, and, and when we gave the law, that we have a propensity to take shortcuts, that we have a propensity to to forget, that we have a propensity to, to wonder. And when God gave the law through Moses, he went back up at the mountain again, Moses did. And while he was gone, the children of Israel at the bottom of the mountain began to wonder, where's Moses? Why has Moses gone so long? He, he's been gone for so long. When is he going to come back? And after Moses was gone around 40 days, the people started saying, Moses must have died. He's not coming back to us We're all by ourselves. And they said to Aaron, Aaron, make us something we can see and we can touch because Moses is not going to come back. 
And Aaron says, give me your earrings. Give me all your gold. And he melted it down, and he made a golden calf. And they said, these are the gods who brought us out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. So let me ask you a question. Was this a violation of commandment number one? You shall have no other gods before me. It was, but not really. They were still honoring God. It was a violation of commandment number two because they made an image. And they emphasized the power of Yahweh. They did emphasize his glory or his holiness. And they kind of tried to contain God in this golden calf, which was against and violation of that commandment. God brought judgment against the children of Israel. Remember, Moses was coming down the mountain. Remember the story, and, and Joshua's there, and Joshua says, Moses, sound like there's war down in the camp. And Moses said, that's not war going on. That's partying going on. As he went down to the camp, it was embarrassing what he saw, because in their idolatry, people in 40 days, only 40 days they've already forgotten. The mountain was shaking. It was trembling. They were fearful. God spoke to them. And they'd already forgotten. In 40 days, they forgot and got it done. And when Moses confronted Aaron, he said, Aaron, what are you doing? And Aaron says, they wanted me to do it. So I melted down the gold, and out came a golden calf. Just out by itself is kind of what he said. And so that's what people, that's what we do. So when we tend to forget that idols rob God of his glory, right? Do we have any idols in our own life? Do we have idols in our life today? You're probably thinking, and maybe you're thinking, hey, I got a fireplace at home. I got a mantle on top of it. But we only have pictures up there. And we don't worship any of those pictures, right? Hopefully you don't. So all of us can say we have no idols on our mantles, right? Can we all say that? Yes. We can all say there's no idols on the mantle. Let's go through the rest of the house. As we walk through the house, let's go to, if you got a basement, let's go down in the basement. Are there any idols in the basement? You go down there, you got something down there. Will you go down there and worship? Is there anything down there? Will you go down there and worship? You got a safe or anything down there? You know, the idol is anything that takes our attention away from God. Anything that we put before God is an idol. It's not that we say, uh, I'm buying down, I made this image. It's anything, anything that we have. What if we go in the garage? Is there any idols in the garage that we have that's there? What if we go in our kitchen, come back in the house, go in the kitchen? You know, many of us have an idol in our house. Many of us do. Let me take you to the idol in our house that many of us have. Imagine yourself in your house right now, and you're walking in your house, and find yourself going to your bedroom or your bathroom and look in the mirror. That's an idol, what you see there. Not the mirror, but what you see in there. Is it possible for many of us, we ourselves have taken the place of God, either as a God or as an idol in our own lives? Is it possible that we've done that? Where our schedules, our wants, our desires, and our time, the way we spend our money all revolves around us and not about our God. We never give him. We don't have time for him. We're always doing something else. We don't have time to spend. We don't have time. Is it possible that we ourselves have become an idol in our own lives, that we worship ourselves, that it's all about us, and, and God is somewhere down there, and once in a while we pay attention to him? The idol has to go, not the mirror. The idol has to go. Is it possible that we take some good things that are meant to be used in our life and we elevate them to places they should not be, and we worship them. They never should be worshipped. They never should be put in that place. Even worship. Is it possible for us, for that to become an idol in our lives? I think so. I, I really think it is. I, I think when we make it about ourselves, when worship becomes more about us than about God, or we make it that I have to have this particular feeling, or this particular song, or this particular thing, and then it becomes more about us. I think it becomes an idol then. 
See, worship is always, always about God. It's always about Him. It's not the kind of songs I like. It's not about the songs. It's not about a band. It's not about none of that. It's always about God. It has to be about God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 24 through 25, it says, when we truly are worshiping God, there might be people in our congregation that don't know Jesus Christ, their Savior, yet. And when they see us worshiping, they see us lifting up our hearts and minds to Jesus, that they're saying, surely God is in this place. Surely God is near, because look at these people. They love God. Look at them, how they're worshiping. So our worship, first of all, is all about God, and it's not about us. It has to be about God. It's not about anything. It has to be about God. It can't be about, I, I have to have a particular feeling. I have to feel this way. It's about a particular song. It's not about the song. It's, not, it's about you before God, giving your heart and your mind to God. It's about Him. And once we make it about what I want and what I feel and what I got to have, it becomes about you, and you made worship into an idol because it's about you and not about God. It always has to be about God, not how I feel, not my emotions. It's about God. And if the emotions come with it, it's wonderful and it's amazing, isn't it? But it has to be about us. By the way, isn't it wonderful that God allows us to do something in worship of him that we can truly, truly enjoy? Isn't it wonderful? Hopefully you enjoy worshiping God. Hopefully you say, but I enjoy it because you're going to be doing it if you know Christ your Savior for eternity. <laughs> that you truly worship, that you truly love to worship him in singing with everything you have. Hopefully you do that. You just don't sing words, but you truly comes from your heart. I really love this. Secondly, it's, it's a testimony as a worshiping. Is it possible to worship God when we're managing our sins, when we're controlling our sins rather than confessing our sins? Is it possible to worship God when we have sin in our life and I'm coming with all this baggage in my life and I haven't confessed it? That becomes an idol. I'm, I'm trying to watch these sins. I got my mind on them and manage it on them. We have to confess our sins before we come to God and worship. Get our hearts pure and clean before him. And get all the things out of our life. So it's just between us and God, right? Not about other people. Not the people beside you. Not people up here. Not about, about God. It's about God. Worship always, always has to be about God. Idols not only rob us of our talents and time, but they rob God. Idols rob God of his glory. The third truth about idols is uh, idols steal our love and trust of God. If you turn your Bibles, if you can turn them real quick to Psalm 115, verse 4 through 8, or if just sit there and listen, but this is a real important verse. Otherwise, write it down. One, Psalm 115, verse 4 through 8, where God says this. Psalm 115, verse 4 through 8. He says, But their idols are silver and gold, made by the hands of men. They have mouths, but cannot speak, eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but cannot hear, noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but cannot feel, feet, but they cannot walk, nor can they utter a sound with their throat. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. When we make our idols, whatever we make of them, they, we become like them. They shape us, is what the Bible says. And those who trust in them, the Bible says they become exactly like them. So trust is diverted from the one true God, and there's only one true God, true, true God to this piece of whatever, to this wood, plastic, metal, clay, to this thought, to this idea, that's idolatry. When our trust is diverted from the one true God to whatever it may be, 
And I start trusting in that, whatever it may be in your life, that's idolatry. When we stop trusting in, and we're trusting in other things, that becomes idolatry. Uh, Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 through 6, I mentioned that verse last week. And it was one of our memory verses from many weeks ago. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean on on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. And maybe you say, boy, I, I do that. I trust God. I trust God with everything. I pray that, and I watch God. He leads me in straight paths. He does all those things. And that's great. Praise God. But let me ask you some questions then. Then are we trusting God with our finances? Then are we trusting God with our schedules and we're scheduling time for God? Are we trusting God with our future? Are we trusting God with our careers? Are we trusting God with our relationships? Are we trusting God with our sexual life? Are we trusting God with every area of our life? Not some, well, I trust him here, but not there. Every area of your life. God wants you to trust him in every area is what he says. See, idols offer nothing. Idols will never, ever satisfy. Idols steal from God's glory. Idols steal our love and trust of God. They only take away. They only take away. They always take away from us. In contrast to idols, we need to understand God is the one true God, right? And he says, I am your God, and you are my people, is what he tells us. And God has given us so much. If we go back to Exodus chapter 20, the second part of verse 5 and 6, I want to share some things from that. It's so important that we notice uh, those verses right there, where God says, I, the Lord, your God, I am your God, you're my people. I, the Lord, your God. He gives us his name. He is your God. He's a personal God. I'm a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations uh, for, uh, who love me and keep my commandments. I want to share a couple of things with you. First of all, and this is not in your notes, God is a jealous God, the Bible says. Does that bother you? Do you have a problem with that, that God is a jealous God? You know, we use that word, and some scholars, when they will look at that word in this context, and they say, this word is used as an anthropomorphism. Now, you've probably run all week without hearing that word, right, or sharing it with somebody else about that word, right, and using that word. But anthropomorphism is a way of describing God in human terms. So jealousy is a way to describe God in human terms. But when we use that term jealousy, when we use it in our culture today, it's normally not looked as a virtue, is it, when we think of jealousy. Jealousy? That doesn't sound right. Because it's a strong desire, but it's mixed with our own vices. It's mixed with our own sinful life. When it's referencing to God, who has no vices at all, it's this desire of God to contain that which he loves. Remember that. It's a desire of God to contain that which he loves. So when he sees us going after another God or another idol, putting something before him, time, place, whatever it may be, he is coming after us because he loves us. He's a jealous God. He's going to pursue you. You better believe it. Just as Hosea went after his wife in the Old Testament. That was an example. And God who comes after me because he's a jealous God, because he loves you, and he wants you to be with him because he knows that's what's best. So when we wonder from God after idolatry, many times we think it's going to increase our joy or it's going to expand our freedom. That's why we do it. I'm going to have increased joy when I go after these other things. God, sorry, but I'm going after this. It's going to increase my joy. It's going to expand my freedom when we go after those things. God knows better, and he comes after us because he loves us. And he's not trying to curb our freedom. He's trying to unlock our freedom. 
He's not trying to kill our joy. He's trying to expand our joy because he's a jealous God, and he loves us. And as I said, he wants to contain that which he loves because he loves you. And he knows what's best for you. He created you. It's him. It's him. And anytime you put something in front of him, before him, he knows it's only going to hurt you or you're going to hurt somebody else. So he says, I am a jealous God. I want to be first in your life in every area. I'm a jealous God because I know that's what's best for you. I created you, and I know you have a purpose in the plan I have for you is for me to be first. And God knows that. But then he says two things here, and it's very important for us to recognize him. The first he says, he says, I will punish. Some translations use the word visiting. Visiting of God the Father often refers for our benefit or for our judgment, right, when he visits. But he says, I will punish or visit those who hate me. I will punish or visit their children to the third and fourth generation. So let me ask you, does that mean that our sins, the sins that uh, of one generation, were used to punish the sins of the next and next and next generation? Our children or grandchildren or great-grandchildren? I don't think that's what he's saying there. I think what he's saying here, I think what it means is these are the, there's ramifications for our sins. There's ramifications for our sins. And the next generation, and the next generation will pick it up. They will see it. They're going to see what we're doing. Our, our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren are going to see what we do. And, and, and seldom is the third generation ever more committed to Jesus than their fathers, their mothers, or their grandparents. Our children are watching you. Do you realize that? Parents, grandparents, great, wake up, listen. Children are watching you. And they're not going to do what you say. They're going to do what you do. They're watching you. You're raising little you. That's what you're doing. You're raising your children who are just like you. So what you do, even though you say, you need to do this, do that. Mom and dad would do what you don't. I'm going to do what you do. And if you want them sold out for Christ, if you really want that, they better see it in your life. Because if they don't, very seldom does the second, third, or fourth generation rise up above where their parents are. And if the parents not sold out for Jesus, the chances your children, your grandchildren, probably won't either. They won't be sold out. Even less than you. So we, 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 when we choose idolatry, when we put other things before God in our life, in our, in our time, in, in place, and all those kind of things, we should not be surprised 20 years later when our children choose the exact same thing or choose some other form of idolatry, and they're not following Jesus. We should not be surprised. Say, why aren't they following Jesus? Because they've seen it in our own lives that we have not done that. I remember years ago there was a man in the church that I kind of became pretty good friends his father was a very, very wealthy man. He owned several dealerships. And he told me that his dad would do whatever he could for money. He said that's all his dad cared about. He said his dad was just ruthless. That all he cared about, he says, was wealth, power, and status. He says when he was growing up, he was the oldest son, and he was supposed to take over the business and everything. And he goes, that I was exactly like my dad. And I told him, but you're not like that now. He goes, I said, what happened? Why? He goes, because of Jesus. He says, Jesus came into my life, and he broke that hard heart of mine. And he says, and I was never, I wasn't like I was before. And he goes, and now I wanted God the Father. I looked at God the Father as my father, and I wanted his traits in my life. I didn't want my earthly father's traits. And he says, Jesus changed my life is what he told me. It was all about Jesus. Our job as parents is to imprint on our children. I had to print on them to the next generation and the next and the next and the next. That's our job. You say, what are we supposed to imprint on our children? What are we supposed to do? Well, we, we, first thing we want to imprint is they know God through Jesus. 
And they know Jesus Christ is their Savior. We want to imprint that. Say, good, I'm done, I'm finished. No, no, that's just the start. That's just the beginning. If that's all you've done, you missed it. You missed it. You missed what it's about. The next thing that they're reading the Bible. They see you reading the Bible. They see you attending church. They see that you're in church. They see that you're growing. They see you're part of Bible studies. They see that you're part of, they see this is important to you, mom and dad. They see that it's important. Because if it's not important to you and they don't see you doing it, they're not going to do it. No matter how much you tell them to do it, they're not going to do it because they're going to do what you do, not what you say. They're going to do what you do. Next thing, they see you obeying God in his word, that you're not compromising it. They see you're committed to God in his word. You're obeying it. You're doing what it says. You're listening to it. And they see you serving Jesus. See you involved in a ministry in church and serving him, serving him outside, and that you're part of this. They see it in your life. That's what they want to see, your commitment to Jesus. I'm not trying to make anybody feel guilty or anything, but that's what they need to see. You want to see this passed down to the next generation. That's what he's talking about to the children of Israel. And that's what he means for us today, to pass it down. So we have to get rid of the idols out of our lives. We have to get rid of those things that uh, we put in front of Jesus as stumbling blocks. They become stumbling blocks for our children, for our grandchildren, for our great-grandchildren. Otherwise, these idols, these things we put before Jesus are going to destroy our legacy. The things that matter most. The next generation, and the next, and the next, and the next. That's what matters most in our lives. And so we're handing down that. We get involved in so many things in this world, and all those things we get involved are temporary. They're going to last for a very short time, for just a short season. But the things of God, they're for eternity. They're eternal. Those are the things that will be lasting. That's the legacy you want to hand down to your children, that one day they say, Mom and Dad, boy, they walk with Jesus. They live for Jesus. That's what you want to hand down because you will spend eternity with them. These other things, guys, they're, yeah, they're important for a time, but they're temporary. To help your children know Christ and to walk with them and live for them, and they see you doing it. That's a legacy, the most important legacy you can give your children to the next generation and the next generation and the next generation. Your children, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, you influence your family's life for generations, whether you realize it or not, what you're doing, how you're living your life. In contrast, listen to what God says. But those who love me and keep my commandments, obey me, listening to me, following me, doing these things, I will show my love to a thousand generations. Think about that, a thousand generations. The negative impact, three or four generations. The positive impact, to a thousand generations, he says. We can have this legacy of ours go on and on and on. That's the possibility. But we have to get rid of the idols in our life. We have to get rid of them, whatever they may be. If we made ourselves an idol, we've got to stop that, right? We have to stop that. We have to put God first in our life. And our kids have to see us. We have to love God. We have to obey him. We have to walk with him. Put those things down that we put before God, whatever it may be. Whatever it may be, put God first in our life. Amen? Amen, you're still with me. Let me share one more thing that's kind of cool or, or neat to see. Let's go back to the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was, was beautiful. The Ark of the Covenant had a cover called the Mercy Seat, right? Remember that. On the Ark of the Covenant was the Mercy Seat. And the nation of Israel had means prescribed by the law to have their, nation, they have their sins dealt with as a nation once a year called the Day of Atonement, right? And so the high priest would come with this long robe, and you've heard me talk about this before. The robe would have pomegranates on the bottom, and they have these bells on the bottom of it, right? And so when he would move, the bells would be ringing and everything like that. And then he had this big, tall hat, and he had a golden sash that would say, Holy unto the Lord. 
would say on this high priest. And the high priest, one day a year in the Day of Atonement, he would go up to a bull, to an animal, and he'd place his hands upon the animal, and he would confess his sins, his family's sins, and the sins of the nation. And then he would sacrifice that bull, and he would take some of the blood of that bull into the Holy of Holies. If he had had sin in his life, he would drop down to the ground, right? And the bells would stop ringing. And they would pull him out by the rope that was tied around his waist because God is serious about holiness. God is serious about the worship of him. And the high priest would walk in that had holy of holies, and he'd go to the mercy seat, and he'd take some of that blood of the bull, and he'd sprinkle it on top of the mercy seat. And he'd do that. Onto that mercy seat that has been empty for a thousand years. For almost a half a million sunsets and sunrises, that, imp- that uh, mercy seat has been empty, giving hope and giving promise to people. Until one night, in a cave at Bethlehem, through a virgin called Mary, she had a son named Jesus, who would come and seek and save that which was lost. And one day he would be lifted up, and his blood would be shed, and his blood would be, be sprinkled on the mercy seat of God in heaven bringing salvation to all those who would believe. That's the picture. That's the salvation. That's the relationship that God wanted with us. That's what he's talking about. And that's what Jesus has done for us. For all of us who know Jesus, all of us who know him, for us to substitute anything else for that is unthinkable. To think anything else could satisfy God. Anybody else, anything else could do what Jesus did for you and I is unthinkable. But God knows that we have a propensity to do that, right? He knows that we have that. And and, and if you don't know Jesus today, I encourage you to put your faith and trust in Jesus. You have someone who loves you so much that God sent his son Jesus to this earth to die on the cross to reconcile you back to God. That's what he did. And Jesus is the only mediator between God and man. There's only one. Moses was there at Mount Sinai, but Jesus is our mediator today. He's the only one. He bridges the gap between God and man. And if you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus, that he died on the cross for your sins, today I would ask you to to turn from your sins and turn toward Jesus and accept his only way of salvation, that he died on the cross for your sins. He paid for your sins on the cross. And put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ for forgiveness of sins. If you've never done that, please do that today. If you have questions about that, see me after the service because that's the most important decision you can make in your life is what do I do with Jesus? That depends on where you will spend eternity, either with him or apart from him. And you're going to want to be with him, believe me. You want to be with God. And the only way to be with God is through Jesus Christ. For all of us who know Jesus, there is no substitute. There is no idol. There is no icon. There is no drawing. There is no sculptor. There is no mirror. That's an adequate substitute for an awesome God. There's nothing, absolutely nothing is it a substitute for the awesome God that we have. He is the greatest. There is no one greater. That's why the songs we sang was all about he is the greatest. So my question is, do you have any idols today? Are there any idols in your life? We've got to get rid of the idols. One way to check if you have any idols in your life, if you have idolatry, is to check your schedule, to check your, your checking account, your bank account. Where you spend your time and where you spend your money is often an indication where your heart is. And Jesus talked about in Matthew chapter 6. We've got to get rid of the idols. And idols are not what we often put that it's something I've carved an image and I'm bowing down. No, our idols are where I'm spending most of my time. What am I doing instead of 
feeling like, God, what am I doing? Where am I spending my time? God understands you got to go to work, but as I go to work, I lift up my heart and mind to God, right? It's unto the Lord that I do my work. Uh, the Apostle John, he was old, probably 90 to 95 years of age. He was set up on an isolated exile to an island of Patmos. And it was the same time in the first century that John wrote the Gospel of John, the book of Revelation, and first and second, third John. And first John, he closes with these words, very powerful. He says, dear children, and then four words. He says this, keep yourselves from idols. Keep yourself from idols. That's John's challenge for us today, is to keep yourself from idols. Don't allow anything to come between you and God. In your schedule, in your time, in your mind, all those kind of things. Put God first. The next generation is watching. They're watching. We owe it to them. We owe it to God. Put him first in all things. And you will never, ever be sorry. Build that legacy that God wants you to have to the next generation, to the next generation, to the third and fourth generation. And then your children who keeps doing it. And will keep going on in your family. That's what God wanted for all of us, for every one of us. Let's build that legacy. But it's always getting rid of the idols and putting God first. Amen? Let's pray. Let's pray. Lord, you come and we praise you. Because there is absolutely no one like you who loves us as much as you do. Who cares about us. Who wants us. Who is jealous for us. That in divine jealousy. Because you love us so much, you want to contain that which you love. And you come after us because, God, you love us so much. And you don't like seeing us going after other gods. You don't like to see us to go after other things and put other things before you because you say it's only going to hurt you. And it's only, only going to hurt your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren, the next generation and the next generation and the next generation. You cry out to us and say, put me first. Build that legacy, not only for you, but for your children, grandchildren, your great-grandchildren. Lord, help us to live the life you've called us. None of us are perfect here, Lord. We've all failed. No matter where we are this morning, Lord, if, we, if someone here doesn't know Jesus Christ as their Savior, Lord, right now, convict them of their sin, that they're a sinner in need of a Savior. And there's only one Savior. There's only one. There's only one mediator between God and man. It's the man Christ Jesus who came and died on the cross for their sin. There's only one that could go to the mercy seat of God in heaven and sprinkle his blood. It's only one. And it's Jesus. And so, Lord, put help. Let them see they need Jesus, God's grace, and they might put their faith and trust in you. For all of us who know Jesus, they remember there's only one God. There's only one true God who loves us. He says, I am your God, and you are my people. Here's your responsibilities. You are my representatives here on this earth, and this is how I want you to live. You shall have no other God before me. You shall not have an idol that's worship. Lord, help us to live the life you called us. Help us, Lord, to put you first and not have idols. Lord, just convict us in our hearts and minds of any idol we might have in the next days and weeks to come. That we'd get rid of them, Lord. That we wouldn't allow anything to rise above you. That we wouldn't put anything in your place. That we'd get rid of them, Lord. So we can live our hearts and minds to you. So, Lord, we can demonstrate to our children and to our grandchildren to our great-grandchildren, and maybe even to our great-great-grandchildren. Lord, help us to live the life. Help us to build the legacy that you want us to have, that you wanted the children of Israel to have, and you want us to have. That, Lord, you said you, you will bless the next generation if we love you and they follow you. So, Lord, I pray that. 
that those who know Jesus Christ as a Savior, that it's just not, oh, I'm saved, and now I can live my life the way I want. No, no. Now I'm saved, and now I must live with obedience to God. I owe that to you, God, and to the next generation, the next and the next, that I live obedience, that I live the life, to give them every opportunity that they might come to know Jesus and follow him because they've looked at my life and looked at your life, and they see the obedience. They see the love and passion that we have for Jesus, that they too might have that. Lord, help us to build a legacy that will bring you glory, that will honor you in every way. Let us put you first. Let us get rid of the idols. Lord, we praise you. We worship you. Lord, work on our hearts today as we come before you. You are a gracious God, and you love us. You love us, and you just want what's best for us. Help us, Lord, to make the right steps in our lives. Help us to cut out the things we need to and put the things in our life that we need, which is you. Lord, we love you and we praise you. We ask these things in that precious name, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and let's worship.